Wireless headphones. That'll be $200. I'll use my Capital One Quicksilver card. Now that's a hit. You used the Capital One Quicksilver card, which makes you the hero of every purchase. With Quicksilver, you earn unlimited 1.5% cash back on every purchase everywhere. I wanted running music, but unlimited 1.5% cash back is pretty heroic. Good instincts. Every hero needs a theme song. The Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. On January 6th of 1982, two unassociated women in Colorado hitched a ride with an unknown male and ended up never making it home. For the last 38 years, the cases of Annette Sheen and Barbara Oberholzer have remained unsolved, but now new light is being shed on these cases. Welcome to or welcome back to the Great Unsolved podcast. All of our social links are in the description below. My name is Alexis and I am your host for this podcast as well as for my second one called Gone in an Instant. This week I have been sick and it took me forever to pick a case to go over with you all today. So the case I picked does not seem to have any other podcast episodes on it but it is really puzzling and intriguing. Most of all, it needs media attention. If this case is ever going to be solved, it needs media attention because it is pretty much a cold case at this point. Today I am discussing the murders of Barbara Burns slash Oberholzer and Annette Sheen. tell you a little bit about one of the soon-to-be victims in this case, Barbara Jo Burns. She was born in the year of 1952 and grew up in Racine, Wisconsin, which is actually 20 minutes from where I grew up and only about 40 minutes from where I live now. She was often described as bubbly and spirited. While in high school, Barbara got pregnant and ended up giving birth to a little girl she named Jackie. Her and her baby's father got married and tried to make it work, but with no success, they divorced in 1974. It is reported that there was no hate between the couple. They got along fine and were still both going to raise their daughter. However, by 1978, Barbara's ex-husband had custody of their daughter. Around the same time, Barbara had met Jeff Oberholzer, and they instantly hit it off. Although Barbara was 22 and Jeff was only 19, they decided to move out to Vermont together. They didn't seem to like it very much as they didn't stay out there too long before coming back to Racine and getting married. They were happy in Racine. Jeff worked at the local incinerator plant and Barbara was a waitress at a local place and also a clerk at a local pet store. Over the next two years, they began to travel to Colorado a lot and they fell in love with the landscape. 
1980 is when they decided to make the big move from Racine, Wisconsin to Alma, Colorado. Over the last few years, Jeff had been learning about how to repair home appliances from Barbara's father. He used his new knowledge to his advantage and created a business called Alpine Appliances. Barbara quickly found work as well. She would work as a waitress slash bartender at Alma's only bar. I believe that's the name of the place, but it may also be like a fact or a nickname that it was Alma's only bar. And she was also a secretary for a real estate firm. The couple was not rich, but they made enough to live comfortably. Barbara had recently bought a horse for $75, and the couple had put a down payment on land, hoping they could one day build a house there. It is reported that they were able to get a loan for the land due to Jeff putting his truck and coin collection up as collateral. This marriage seemed to be great. They moved to where they loved, they had bought land, Jeff had his own business, etc. However, other family members have said their marriage had a lot of difficulties. One being that Jeff happened to be a drug user. When questioned about this, Jeff stated that yes, he was a drug user, but no, it had not affected his marriage. He believed his marriage to Barbara was going very well and was very solid. There are a few incidents that suggest against Jeff's claim. A few days before Barbara was murdered, she came home late, so the pizza she brought for dinner was cold. This caused Jeff to attempt to hit her, but accidentally put a hole through the wall instead. This seems like a very trivial thing to lash out on, so it seems maybe not all was well in the marriage. The second soon-to-be victim in this case was Annette Schnee, who moved from Iowa to Colorado after trying out a few different jobs. She had been an athlete in school and then went out to try modeling in Omaha. Something drew her into Colorado, where she dreamed of being a flight stewardess at some point. Annette was single and often felt men just used her, and she was done with that being the case. It is stated that she was much more laid back and docile than Barbara was. Now onto the day that everything changed for these two poor women. On January 6th of 1982, the alarm went off at 5.30 a.m. in the Oberholzer house, and Barbara got up to get herself ready for work. Only having one car and Jeff happening to need it for the day pushed Barbara to have to hitchhike to work. Jeff states that in Alma, hitchhiking wasn't what you thought it was. He states that people would stand next to the road or even just in front of their house like Barbara did, and eventually someone you know would offer you a ride. Apparently, Barbara never got in a car with someone she didn't know. She was very safe about hitchhiking. However, on January 6th, Jeff watched from inside the home when Barbara had a car pull over to her. He did not recognize this car. Adding to the mystery, this car had out-of-state plates. Nonetheless, Barbara got into this car and was on her way to work. I know what everybody thinks is going to happen, but actually, this stranger dropped Barbara off at work by 8.30 a.m., and Barbara sat at her desk the rest of the workday. 
Around 5 p.m., it is reported that Barbara called home to let Jeff know she would be going to get a drink with friends at a place called The Pub. Jeff did not answer this call. The Pub was located at a mall that was very close to Barbara's job, so it is assumed she just walked there. At 6.20 p.m., Barbara calls Jeff again and finally gets a hold of him. It is reported they talked on the phone for a little bit, and Barbara was still at the pub at this time, and she told Jeff that Char McKesson and Dan Carey, which were two of her friends, would be giving her a lift home. However, over an hour later, Char and Dan still did not want to leave the bar. Detective Eaton stated this, quote, Supposedly, she started getting upset with these people because they didn't want to go home. She told the bartender that she was going to call home. She grabbed some change and went into the hall, and came back a few minutes later, grabbed her coat, and told the bartender, I'm going to leave. Don't tell them that I've gone for a while. Just tell them I'm going to hitchhike home. Thanks anyway. And then she left. End quote. Barbara then walked to a convenience store that was not too far away from the pub. Many hitchhikers often waited at this convenience store. At around 7.50 p.m., a witness says he drove up to a woman matching Barbara's description and offered a ride. She declined and stated that since he wasn't going all the way south, for her to get in the car made no sense. This was the last time that Barbara Burns Oberholzer was seen alive. As for Annette, the morning of January 6, 1982 is pretty much unknown, but by 3.30 p.m., she finished her shift as a house cleaner at a nearby hotel and hitchhiked to the SC Medical Center. There, she was treated for a yeast infection, got her medication, and then hitchhiked again to South Breckenridge. The pharmacy that Annette had stopped at recalls her coming in with another unidentified female around 4.30 p.m. that day. This other female was described as 5'4", slender, and looked as if she had been camping for a few days. This was the last anyone would see of Annette alive. She never made it home to change into her second job's uniform and never made it to her waitress shift at the flip side. Barbara's husband, Jeff, didn't begin to worry about Barbara until long after her killer had probably picked her up. It is reported by witness statements that Jeff was home from at least 4.30 p.m. to around 6, but some reports say he was even home until around 8. Jeff got mad after Barbara didn't come home for a while, and he begrudgingly put away the dinner and dessert he had made and went to go get ready for bed. All was well for a few hours until police sirens sounded off in the distance. This seemed to wake Jeff up, at which point he saw it was midnight. He went out to the couch and ended up falling back asleep until about 2 a.m. This is finally when he started to worry because Barbara was still not home. Instead of sit at home, he went out to look for her. 
He thought maybe she ended up at a friend's house or back at her office and just forgot to call and inform him. At least, this is what he was hoping for. To his dismay, he did not find Barbara anywhere and ended up reporting her missing around 3.30 a.m. When Jeff returned home, he states it was around 9 a.m. that morning, he got a call from a local rancher by the name of Donald Hamilton. Hamilton stated that he had found Barbara's driver's license in his yard. Hamilton's home was about 10 or 11 miles northeast of Fairplay, which was not in the direction Barbara would have been going to get home. Later searches would reveal that most of her purse contents were strewn among his yard. The recovery of the license would cause friends and family of Barbara's to go search along the Route 285, and Jeff's brother would eventually join in. They didn't find much, but they did find one of Barbara's gloves with human blood on it, as well as a tissue with human blood. The blood on both of these items was DNA tested, and it was later concluded that it came from the same unknown male. From all of this evidence that was found, it was assumed that either Barbara or her assailant had thrown out all of her things while driving along Route 285. However, at this point, the police were still not on board. After finding this evidence, Jeff and a friend went back to the police to once again report Barbara missing, but the police did nothing at this time. It is assumed they thought she just decided to leave, as she was legally able to do. I know police generally have to wait a certain amount of hours to make sure it wasn't voluntary disappearance, but I believe the blood on these pieces of evidence should have been taken more seriously. 20 hours after Barbara's last known sighting, search parties, which still consisted of mostly her friends and family, found her with two bullet holes. It seems she was shot at very close range of about one to two feet away. And her body was found 20 feet off the road of Route 9, about 10 miles south of Breckenridge. From here, police finally took over and were able to somewhat piece together what might have happened. According to Barbara's husband, Jeff, Barbara was never one to get in a car with someone she didn't know and she had never really had to do it, so it is safe to assume that she knew whoever killed her that night. However, also according to Jeff, he had told her not to hitchhike home. He stated that he offered to come out and pick her up, and she stated that her friends would give her a ride home. Why would she go out in negative 30 degrees to wait for a car if she could have just called her husband to come get her? Anyways, from here it is assumed they went to the Hoosier Pass parking lot and tried to hurt or kill Barbara. However, she was a very strong woman and had injuries that went along with a fierce fight. Not to mention, there were makeshift cuffs attached to her left wrist, but it seems the killer wasn't able to get it around her right wrist. The theory based on evidence is that Barbara was able to run away from her captor, but not too far down Route 9, the killer caught up to her as she was climbing a snowbank and delivered the two shots. 
One simply grazed her right chest area and the other one went through her right lung. It seems even after this happened, Barbara was not one to give up. Her trail suggests she staggered for quite a while until the bullet took its toll and she bled to death. However, other evidence has suggested that the gunshots occurred where her body was found, so we may never know for sure. Annette Schnee was not noticed to be missing until January 8th when one of her co-workers reported her missing to police. For months, there was nothing found of Annette. She was missing until July 3rd, 1982, when a 13-year-old boy found a dead woman lying face down in Sacramento Creek. Due to the drive to get to the area where Annette was found, police automatically started looking at locals. There was no way someone from out of town would have known how to get to this area or may have even tried, especially on the night of January 6, 1982. Sacramento Creek was in a very isolated mountain valley, and the night these women went missing, it was snowing and it was freezing. It seems there was no way someone would have made this drive and walk. One of Annette's orange socks had been found in January, about 100 yards from where Barbara's body had been found. Once her body was found, that is when police began to link these cases. Annette's backpack was also found at some point, and within it was a picture of a man who has never been identified. There will be a link in the description. Please go view this photo and see if you can recognize him at all. Annette was far too decomposed by the time her body was found, unlike Barbara's, and therefore police would not answer questions about sexual assault. However, it is assumed she was sexually assaulted because, according to her mother, she would dress very meticulously with, like, long underwear, then knee-high socks, then pants, etc. But when she was found, one of her knee-high socks was shoved in her sweater or coat pocket, and Annette's mother believes this is because she was forced to strip and then she put her clothes back on. It is assumed that her cause of death was a quarter-inch bullet wound in her back. Although police could not say what caliber gun it was, they could say it resembled the wounds of Barbara, once again linking the cases. suspect in both of these cases was Jeff Oberholzer, Barbara's husband. There was literally no other real suspects in the case. Investigators have stated that Jeff was the only credible one. He was local, so that checked out, and that would solve the question of why Barbara got into whatever car she did that night. If it was her husband and not some stranger, it would make a lot more sense. Jeff even stated his wife would never get into a stranger's car, so it seems as if he almost incriminated himself there. She could have talked to him on the phone about this while she was still at the bar, 
and then went to the Quick Mart to wait for Jeff. This could explain at least one theory as how she got to where she died. However, then the question of why kill Annette comes into play. Well, Jeff had denied ever meeting her, but then once her picture appeared, he stated he had given her a ride once. So they had some sort of previous connection. And sometimes one little interaction is all it takes for a killer to meet his mark. Putting some doubt on Jeff as the suspect is that he did a lie detector test and something called a hypnotic test, which is where I believe you are hypnotized and questioned. And he passed both of them. Now, neither of these point to someone being entirely innocent, as lie detector tests can often fail, and I'm not even sure if hypnotism is real, so I don't know how that test would be taken in a court of law, but it did make some people doubt that he was guilty. After these tests, one investigator said this, quote, on paper, he is the most logical suspect. In reality, I don't think he did it. And if he did, he planned it really well. He psyched himself into thinking he didn't do it or that it was totally justified, end quote. Okay, now things are going to get a little supernatural, but this is part of the reason that Jeff's own brother believes he killed both of these women. Jeff had, let's just call it a friend for now, you'll see what I mean and why I don't know what to call it in a minute. This friend was called Mr. Death or Mr. Darkness. And Jeff states this friend latched on to him in the house he moved to after Barbara had died. And it apparently just always sat at the end of his bed. His sister-in-law states she saw it one night. She said as she was laying in bed with Jeff's brother, her husband, the thing kind of materialized at the door. And this thing was like seven foot tall and very dense. And it was just dark. Now, this woman also says she's always been able to see spirits. And depending on your view of ghosts and spirits, this may be total just crap to you. And I don't know where I stand on that, so I just thought I would tell you guys about it. Anyway, she says it is not something that is occult, it is just karma for Jeff. She says it is the spirit of vengeance. Since this time, though, investigations have moved away from Jeff. But sadly, there are no new suspects in either of these cases. The weapon used in Barbara's death was a 38 or 357 handgun with a Remington Peters copper jacketed hollow point bullet. It is assumed that this is the same weapon in Annette's case. This weapon has not been discovered. If you know anything about this case, call Eagle County Crime Stoppers at 970-328-7007. Once again, that was 970-328-7007. 
or submit your tip online at www.tipsubmit.com. I also want to mention that four days ago it was announced that a new Discovery Channel show called Sensing Murder will feature this case on Thursday, so tomorrow. So be sure to check it out, and maybe there will be stuff I've never covered, maybe there's new information, and that would be awesome. So just remember to follow us on Twitter at Great Unsolved and on Instagram at Great Unsolved Pod. I've started giving updates and refreshers on different cases through Instagram stories, and so far I'm liking it, so I will continue to do it. Stay safe and have a great day. time starts with a great wardrobe. Next stop, JCPenney. Family get-togethers to fancy occasions, wedding season too. We do it all in style. Dresses, suiting, and plenty of color to play with. Get fixed up with brands like Liz Claiborne, Worthington, Stafford, and Jay Farrar. Oh, and thereabouts for kids. Super cute and extra affordable. Check out the latest in-store, and we're never short on options at jcp.com. All dressed up, everywhere to go. JCPenney.